welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing. Now here's where I usually say I'll be the host for today's event, but I won't be. Today we're going to try something a little bit different. We're going to listen in on a conversation. A conversation between Neil Barron of Barron Strategic Partners and Bob Mesta, co-creators of the Job to Be Done methodology. They're going to be chatting about what Jobs to Be Done is and how it relates to market problems that we talk so much about here at Pragmatic Marketing. And since they've literally worked on thousands of products between the two of them, they're going to share some tips and best practices of what they've learned along the way. Let's listen in. This is Neil Barron from Massachusetts. Uh, I'm a management consultant. I help companies implement product marketing and product management best practices using the pragmatic marketing framework. It is my absolute pleasure to have Bob Mesta here from just outside of Detroit. Bob is also a management consultant, and I'll let Bob introduce himself. Yes, good morning, um, Neil. So I'm a um, basically I'm a product development expert. I help people. Uh, develop new products, services, and, and businesses. I've uh, done over 3,500 in my lifetime and, and basically have different methods and tools uh, to help people do that. So it's my pleasure to be here today. Great. And the purpose of this call is to and podcast is to introduce the jobs to be done theory that Bob developed in the mid-1990s and has ex- extensive experience implementing. What we'll be doing on this call is discussing in detail the jobs to be done theory, but also how it aligns the pragmatic marketing's approach by starting by identifying market problems or also looking at what progress or outcomes customers want to achieve. And since many of you have taken pragmatic marketing classes, we feel it would be helpful to introduce this very powerful approach and show how it is pretty synergistic to some of the things you've learned in pragmatic training. So, Bob, uh, why don't you give us a brief overview of the jobs to be done theory? Yep. Yep. Um, so, uh, basically, I, I grew up in the in the in the 80s is when I became an engineer, and I, I learned a lot of uh, total quality kind of uh, methods and tools. And I worked for Deming in in 85 to 87 as an intern and. One of the things that kept coming up was this notion of trying to understand, you know, uh, not just the problems, but then the functions of things. And then as, as I learned those different aspects of it, what happened is, is um, I ended up moving upstream into more product development. And, and what I found is that the, the demographic and psychographic data that people were laying out made no sense to me as an innovator. And so Basically, I help uh, create this framework uh, called Jobs to Be Done, and the premise is pretty simple. People don't buy products. They hire them to make progress in their life, right? And the, the notion here is that people people are uh, have a struggling moment, and from that struggling moment, they're, they're trying to basically say, what should I do next in order to make progress? And so... That is how I basically uh, put in place all of my – all the innovations that I create have to be built under that foundational premise. Um, you know, and, and in doing that, it's – you know, I've, I've done everything from uh, – you know, I've worked on uh, weapon systems and uh, uh, software and autos and, you know, uh, consumer electronics and um, uh, consumer packaged goods. 
uh, everything from houses to mac and cheese to uh, the, the space shuttle main engine. So from that, I've been able to do quite a bit. Excellent. Uh, so why don't you give us an example? I, I know you and I have spent quite a bit of time talking, and you have some excellent examples, whether it's Snickers, whether it's some work you've done around a milkshake, or even work uh, around construction and yep. new home purchases. The easiest one that's most relatable, I think, in some cases, is the, is the home building one. Is that, you know, basically um, in 2005 to 2008, I basically built a thousand homes here in Detroit based on kind of using these premises and a lot of other tools. But um, one of the places that we really focused on was this notion of uh, downsizers, people who uh, think of your parents selling their home, and that and that the the essence of it is that we look at uh, we look for four forces that kind of cause people to say today's the day I need to move or today's the day I buy a new house. And by doing that, we, we, do, we have an interview technique that basically goes back in time and almost um, uh, maps the customer journey, but really gets down to kind of the documentary of what happened, both socially, emotionally, and functionally, that said, today's the day I got to get that new house, and, why, and what were you hoping for? So it's a combination of the context that they're in and the outcome that they seek. And so we look for one force we look for is what we call the push of the situation and what causes people to say today, like what around them is happening that says what I'm doing now is not working. And if you think about your your parents, it's, it's you know, the, the house is too big. Uh, there's too much work uh, outside. Uh, I, need the, I need a new roof. Um, the, the neighbors are moving away. It has nothing to do with the new solution, but it has everything to do with that context or circumstance that they're in. And then the second force is that they'll see, you know, if they, if they don't actually see a way in which to make progress, I call it bitching ain't switching. And so they just bitch about the situation without basically trying to figure out how to make progress. But the moment that they would see my, you know, 1,654-square-foot ranch, you know, two-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath condo, they, they'd literally go, oh, your, your mom would say something to the effect of, oh, my gosh, this is the house I always wanted. No, I don't have to take the stairs. Um, I love the granite countertops. You know, it's... You know, um, I don't have to, we don't have to do any maintenance outside. There's all these things that kind of pull them to that new solution. But, but to those two forces, the push and the pull, there's two counter forces, what we call the anxiety of the new and the habit of the present, which is the anxiety of the new is all the questions that come up in, in, in your parents' mind as they start to think about um, moving. And it's like, how are we going to sell the house? And, you know, I, I don't know anybody out there. And all the things that come up. And then with the habit of the present is all the things they love about their current home and all the, the emotional impact that of your current home, which is this is where we raise the kids. And, you know, I know where everything is, and et cetera. And so what happens when the that anxiety and habit are greater than the, the push and the pull, people don't switch. They don't actually buy or make progress. And so the interviews we do are really specifically geared towards what and when and the emotional, social, and functional stories around that. So to give you one example around that is um, we kept hearing people wanting to move, and then what would happen is, is we'd have um, – I kept hearing this story about my, my, my niece, Sarah, took the dining room table. And the first time I hear it, I didn't really think about it. And then it was like, you know, and then, and then you know, uh, my, my daughter took the dining room table and we moved. And so you kept hearing something around the dining room table. And about the 10th or 11th time of hearing this dining room table, they started to realize there was something up with the dining room table. 
And what they told us when we when we when we designed the condo was they would rather have a bigger second bedroom and no dining room because they didn't want to they didn't want to sponsor or, you know or host you know Christmas or the holidays or or you know Thanksgiving it was like you know we want to go somewhere else. And if they had the dining room table, they would be. They felt like they would be obligated to do so. But the reality is, is that the dining room table to your mother is the emotional bank account of everything they, they, she's done in a, as a mom. And she's not going to give it away to Goodwill, and she's not going to put it in the basement, and it's not going to sit on the side. So what I did is I actually cut down the second bedroom by 20%. And, and when I did that, I basically created this really, really small area for the dining room. And, and it was not that big that you could actually probably eat in it, but it was big enough that you could set up the dining room set in it. And by doing that alone, I increased sales by 22%. And so by addressing the anxiety of the situation as opposed to trying to address the ha the pull, it really focuses on the trade-offs that people have to make. And so to me, ultimately, I'm looking for the trade-offs that people are making along the way and being able to make sure that my product or service or business match that value code that they have. Fantastic. Uh, and the other thing that is also impressive, all this stuff that we do, whether it's by focusing on customer outcomes, progress that customers want, want to make, jobs to be done, it really is all about driving successful products and increasing revenue as well. That's right. So this, right. this, this work that we're doing and the pragmatic framework isn't just some nice theory, but there's a whole host of research, but also experience where we both can point to a track record of saying, you do this, this yeah. stuff works. Yeah, and well, and I, that's what I work with Clay on. So Clay, Clay's really the one who kind of took, if you will, I'm, I'm almost the, the practitioner, and Clay has taken, you know, my years of experience and We've, we've had the luxury of working together for almost 23 years, and he basically has built it into a theory, and, and, and that makes it more generalizable across many things. Now, I've applied across many things, but I'm, I'm not a professor or a, pra a pragmatist. You know, I'm, I'm much more practical. I'm much more like roll up my sleeves. I'm from Detroit. I want to roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty, right? So, so it, it is. A, it is. Uh, I think um, taking it to a theory level is important because then you can have generalized people can take it and do things with it. But it is then applied in many, many, many different areas. Okay, great. And by the way, Clay is Clay Christensen. You know, uh, the uh, world-renowned professor of innovation uh, at Harvard Business School. I also had the pleasure of taking classes and getting to know Clay as well. And just a uh, brilliant, brilliant mind, one of the top uh, business thinkers of, of our generation. So, yeah. Bob, uh, th thanks for sharing uh, with that as well. So let's now talk, because the audience is familiar with pragmatic marketing's approach, and pragmatic marketing talks about starting with market problems and yep. understanding what is not working. So yep. in my world, working with a lot of technology companies, it's so easy to get wrapped around the product or yes. the offering and, yes. the, and talk about features. Yep. So I know when, we, when you and I have met in the past and we talked about the dining room table story, it's very easy to go out and ask prospects or potential customers, well, what color should we paint the walls? <laughs> would, you, right. would you like a thicker rug? 
are, yeah. gee, should the cabinets or the countertops be granite or some other surface? And yeah. those are all features, but whether you're looking at jobs to be done, whether you're looking at customer outcomes, as I talk about, or customer value, uh, I know Landing and Phillips in the 1980s were talking about benefit experiences. We're really getting at the root in terms of what's suboptimal in the life of the customer, what's not working, right. uh, or what changes would they like to achieve in order to make progress. That's right. So, That's right. So, uh, I want to be a little stronger than that because I don't think it's what they like to achieve. It's what they want to achieve. It's, 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 yep. This is all about behavior. And so to me, there, there's lots of times you'll, you'll show your product to people and go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I really like that. But they'll never buy it. And that's, that's my, so my, my whole premise really has rooted from the fact that consumers lie only because they don't know. And so they're trying to appease you. And the reality is, is that the method that I've developed is really based on a criminal and intelligence interrogation method. It's really about this timeline and understanding when did they do what? And why did they do that? And understanding the underlying causal factors to it. Because at some point in time, consumers are actually too nice as well as they, 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 there's nothing grounded. And it goes back to me for Deming where Deming would say, you know, consumers actually cannot understand what what's the possibilities are. But what they do know is they're, they're in a situation where they want to do something different and that, that they're looking for, for what, what is possible in the future. But the reality is they, we can't expect them to design the product for us because they don't know. And then for them to pick features is almost comical because they, they have no idea. But they have a notion of the outcome they're seeking, but it's up to us as designers and engineers to figure out how to help them get to that outcome. Exactly. And so a lot of it is what do you want to achieve uh, as opposed to how do you want to achieve it. That's correct. It, it, it's basically uh, an awful, you know, very, very critically important. That's right. Um, what, and what, so one of the things I learned in Japan, which to me has kind of had a very large influence on me, is they always used to talk about technology-independent view of the customer. So how do I actually understand what the customer's situation is and the outcome that they're trying to make, irrelevant of whatever solution they pick? So can I describe their, their, their context and outcome, the when I am and so I can, in a way that doesn't enable me, that doesn't limit me by any technology? And the moment that I could do that, I actually have the foundations for great innovation. Yeah, and so it's all understanding that disconnect between where they are right now and yeah. where they want to go. That's right. That's yeah. why, that's why it, outcome alone is not... Uh, sufficient because outcome alone doesn't describe the value. Value has to do with where they are and where they want to go. And if they start in different places and want to go to the same place, sometimes those are very different value codes. Yeah, exactly. And one of the approaches that I look at is something called the value equation, which is benefits that the customer can achieve minus the cost of achieving those benefits. And those costs are the emotional, those costs are the uh, other financial investments that they have to make, um, and other types of investments. And if those investments outweigh the potential benefits in the eyes of the consumer, they don't move. That's right. That's right. Because there's, there's also time and knowledge. Like, if they don't know how to do it, so it might be that they have the money and they have, they have the time, but if they don't have the knowledge, they can't do it either. 
So part of this right. is being able to, to, to dig past just the concept of money, but it's money, time, and knowledge are, are to me, usually the, the key, the key uh, uh, measures of, 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 of uh, kind of like how value. Yeah, exactly. I'd also put in you know, money, time, knowledge. I also, as you pointed out, just to remind the audience, we're talking about risk as well. That's correct. That and, risk, and risk, risk is confidence around the knowledge. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So, uh, you know, you and I have both done a lot of these types of uh, prospect, customer, potential buyer interviews, looking at the journey. Uh, I've... You know, as we were talking about just before we got on the podcast, this is really hard. Yeah. And I see so many managers who, with all the best intentions, want their teams to get out there and become a customer-centric organization. But what they end up doing is giving an edict like, okay, I want everybody in marketing or everybody in product management go out there and... Mm-hmm. Talk to two customers a month. Yep. The challenge is that there's nothing about the quality, and a lot of these people lack the skills and the experience uh, to be able to turn these into meaningful dialogues. So yep. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the difficulties in conducting these conversations. Yeah. So so the first thing is, is that, like, for me, this is where I've really become very um, – um, kind of uh, hardcore, which is the people that I pick to talk to, I need to talk to people who have switched from one thing to another. So people who recently hired your product or people who have recently left your product. Because what I find is people who have been using your product over and over and over again for years. It's kind of like if you've been buying Tide for years and you walk to the grocery store and you buy another thing of Tide and say, tell me about buying Tide, you, you, you just make stuff up because you don't know. But if you talk to people who were using Gain in the last 90 days and now are using Tide, or people who were using who were using Tide and now switch to Gain, there's there's some causal mechanism that says, yeah, this is not working. This is what I need. This is why this one's the best, and what I'm trying to achieve. And so, to me, I'm always looking for people who have switched, one way or another. They've switched because at that point, there's a clear almost. Um, in my mind, a crime that I can look, I can investigate to understand what caused them to say not this and now that. Um, and so, f- first of all, is picking the right people to be talking to, because at some point, your best customers. Again, I would say bitching isn't switching. So you're, sometimes your best customers are going to bitch about a bunch of stuff, but they're actually never going to switch. It's the people who have actually made the behavior and said, "Today's the day I'm going to sign up," or "Today's the day I'm going to quit." And you learn yep. so much from this notion of when people quit. So I've actually termed a, termed a, uh, coined a term around it called zombie revenue, and that there are, especially in the software world, you find that there are people who are paying who are extracting value, and you're just waiting for the credit card to expire, or the fact is, is that they're not actually getting any value of it. And so part of it is how do you actually understand how to, how to either re-engage people or give them alternatives so they don't switch away. So um, I think that's a great point about looking for the switchers. Um, Not all, especially in B2B where you're, for example, uh, working with applied materials and you're investing in tens of millions of dollars in equipment, well, the switching doesn't always happen that often 
Uh, yeah. But, but what I've found in those situations, you can go out and get a tremendous amount of information uh, from talking to these executives, not so much about the product, but about what still is suboptimal in their world, what other progress they would like to make. So but, I was wondering uh, if you... Yeah, yeah. You know, so, just, so yeah. I'm, I actually have a project right now I'm working on, which is where, where we're, we're talking about people who, who would switch, for example, materials. And, and the notion here is that would you... And, and it's really about understanding the progress that they have to actually make in order to, and how do they frame up. So to me, it's talking about the last time they bought capital equipment. So even though they're not buying my capital equipment, it's understanding what are the underlying causal factors in their lives and what were the outcomes that they were seeking from that time that they bought new capital equipment to basically say that they're willing to switch materials. So part of it is being able to go back and find analogous markets or analogous things because it goes through the same kind of process. And so part of this is even though you might have, they might not switch often, but the, the aspect is, is by understanding kind of the, the, again, the mechanisms by which they say it's time to switch. And then also understanding, as you put it, the, the underlying other struggling moments that are wrapped to it to be able to say, can we actually design a better solution? But, but staying away from your product, especially if they don't have it, have it is, 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 is important in understanding their situation and their outcome irrelevant of your product or technology. Yeah, no, and I think that's a very important point you're making about staying away from the technology. Because what happens is I've observed people when they go out and they talk to people who are having struggling moments, the the executive, for example, that you want to talk to sees the name on the badge of the vendor and immediately wants to talk about the product. Yep. So in some ways, executives in the marketplace, so let's say you are with applied materials, let's say, or to pick any large company, IBM, yep. and they see the IBM logo on your badge or on your yep. business card or your visitor's badge, and yep. immediately they're going to say, well, let, what's going on with IBM? Or tell me about the products that you're producing. Or, gee, we do have lots of IBM products. When's the next release? So how, you know, one of the challenges and the pitfalls is that customers will drag you into a product and features conversation. Oh, always, yep. So part of it is you have to let them talk. You have to let them, if that's where they want it to go, you might have to use the first 10 minutes or 20 minutes to, to feed whatever they need. But then you have to be able to, like in a, any good uh, interrogator, you're going to close the book and say, thank you, thank you very much. And, oh, I have one more question. And then when you have one more question, that question leads to a whole new story. And so part of it is, is they have to realize that they're trying to get something done, but the, the moment that you can get them to start talking about something that's important to them and how they made decisions and what, what they did. So it's, it's, in some cases, it's that, it's that second story, not the first, that's really important. And so part of this is that's why it makes it so difficult is because sometimes there's a pre, pre-planned agenda that you have to meet, but the real data you want to get is, is almost at the end of the conversation. When you get into talking about their business problems, and getting, their, their issues is where you want to you want to talk about that as well. Uh, the other thing I've found is that uh, in B two B situations, there are blockers to the market, and those are called salespeople. 
<laughs> and I find that sales, if you look at a, a market and a lot of the companies I work with, aren't selling into a market of thousands or tens of thousands. They may be selling into a market of hundreds. Yep. And you have a sales team. And the sales team is super, super protective of letting any marketing people or non-sales people into their account. Mm -hmm. Have you come into that situation where uh, you're dealing with salespeople? Yeah, so, so part of it is is that, that I think what's important is to realize that sales and marketing have to work together. So uh, in some cases what we'll do is we'll actually start by interviewing the salespeople about their accounts and see how much they know and when they realize they don't have enough to actually do it, that they'll, you can either coach the salespeople or you figure out how to partner with the salespeople and go together. And so to me, the salespeople have to be seen as an ally and, and, again, how to work together as opposed to being so, you know, standoffish. And so part of it is being able to do it. The other part would be is how do you go, you know, you might start the whole thing by talking to people who have quit. So at some point if the salesperson is like, yeah, they, they, you know, we lost this account, it's like go and do the, go and do the work to, to say why they lost the account. And my thing is you learn a, a ton from that and that, that might be able and that learning might be able to help you because it's, it's again, it's their situation and outcome that said today's the day we're going to leave. And what you'll find is sometimes it's, it has to do with you and sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with you. And so part of it is being able to understand those underlying causal factors and help, help sales understand those, what those things are. And so one way you can help sales to, to get them to let you be able to talk to them more is to show that you know how to talk to customers. Yeah, exactly. And so that's one of the fallacies of having uh, inexperienced people go out and talk to customers. Not only will you suboptimize the data that you get, but you'll run the risk of hurting your relationship long term with your sales organization. You know, I yep. brought I brought Joe out and Joe basically embarrassed me or Joe didn't really ask the right questions or we didn't get any good information. Uh, on, in contrast, when I've done these, uh, I remember doing it with a CapEx, you know, a capital equipment supplier. We went out to a large customer, and the sale, we brought the salesperson along, and we told them that they could not say a word. Uh. All they could do was say no, and we got that agreement up front, and we went through eight of these in, uh, in a day. Yep. And at the end, at the end of the day, the salesperson said, "That was the best sales call I've ever been on, and yet I didn't yep. open my mouth." Yep. I, I have 14 pages of notes of which to go back and opportunities to explore. So, in some ways, we can show this to be a value add to the salesperson as well. That's for sure, and that that that's happened more times than not. Yeah. So, and so we all go, go out and just moving on uh, to the next topic, Bob. So you go out, you collect this data, and how do you identify jobs to be done from the interview data? Does it just yeah. pop into your head? No. You know, that dining room table, I know you told no. us about how you were sitting around your dining room table and it became clear the emotional attachment. Is yeah. it just magic or there's your son? No, there's a, there's a pretty, uh, there's a, there's, there's a pretty, uh, uh, there's three types of different analysis we do with that data. And so part of it is, is we do what we call a forces analysis where, where out of each, 
each interview and each each interview might have a few stories, but taking each story of talking about switching from one thing to another or going from one product to another, we, we try to define what we call the vectors of progress, which is we take the pushes and the pulls and the anxiety and habit, and we, we're, we're able to, to understand kind of what are the things that had to, what are the dominoes that had to fall in order for them to make the decision to pick something new, and then what were those hiring and firing criteria. And so from the interviews, we actually extract that information. The other part we do is we also understand the sequence of things that happened, and we go through what we call first thought and active looking, and then uh, or passive looking and then active looking and then deciding and understand the trade-offs that people make along the way. And that is like, yeah, I wanted this, but I was willing to pay more to get that. And so part of it is being able to understand how do they make decisions and what, is the, what are the trade-offs you're willing to make. And from that, we can start to do what we, we use a pattern analysis. And so um, at, the, at, the, at the most simplest level, we, we, we use an affinity process to basically kind of cluster those stories that are like so we can understand similar context and similar outcomes. But at a, and in some cases, we actually get very analytical and do math, and we can actually do what we call next nearest neighbor analysis to tell you how many distinct different value codes or how many different um, um, vectors of progress there are. And then from that, we can then detail out because we put together the, uh, those stories that are similar. So the one thing that's real different, I think, about the approach is we don't actually segment or take anything in, in pieces. We actually keep all the stories intact and group them together and say, here's similar context, here's similar outcomes, here's hiring and firing criteria. And by doing that, we can actually see new variables. So there's, there's a pretty rigorous process for us to basically go through and do that. Um, but there's also, you know, simple ways in which you can, you can, you know, there's a, I'll say a, an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school way in which to, to kind of analyze those uh, um, interviews. Okay, fantastic. So, uh, and then, so one thing that, you know, I, you know I'm familiar with Clay's newest book, uh, Competing Against Luck. Yep. I uh, recommend everybody reads that book. Yeah. Uh, there's also a Harvard Business Review article that was published in the September 2016 issue that gives uh, also additional background uh, on the jobs to be done theory. So those are two great resources. Uh, but at the end of the book, they talk about how uh, this is not just marketing stuff that we work on, but this mm -hmm. also drives organizational alignment. Yes. So I'd like to wrap up the podcast by talking about the organizational alignment aspect of this. Yeah, so what, what uh, the best example of that is a company called Intercom. So uh, intercom.io uh, or intercom.com, they're, they're, uh, they, they, they've been a client for, I don't know, four or five years, and, and um, they're one of our most public clients, and what they've done is, is they, they talked about how they had one platform to handle kind of all the communication for a software company. So think of uh, live chat and CRM and help desk and email and marketing automation is typically people buy it all separate. And so what happens is they bundled it into one thing, and they basically sold it as one thing, and you got all of it for one price. And and. What happened is they got to about 2013, 2014, and uh, like October, and 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 they started to flatten their sales out. And so we got we got uh, involved to basically help them understand the real reason why people were hiring their product. And we we end up coming back with with four, coming back to four jobs, and it's it's literally the website is laid out that way. 
And it's, you know, help me acquire customers, help me engage customers, people who've already signed up, help me engage them, help me learn about my product, or help me uh, fix support. And so from that, we were able to, or they were able to kind of break, you know, see that they had one platform, but they could actually customize the way, the skin, if you will, of how it went in. And so once they did that, though, the problem they had before is people would buy it for one, but they'd never use it for any of the other things. And so people would come in and use it to fix support, but they'd never use the marketing automation piece. So now by actually breaking it apart and saying there's these four jobs, these four problems we solve, they're actually able to, 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 to grow almost 500% in about 18 months. And what they did is once you became a customer of one of the one of the four jobs, they then became a candidate to say, are you ready for any of these other three that are left? And so they've got synergy between all the different areas. And so before where they were, once they were in, they just didn't want to lose them. But now once they're in, they're, okay, now they become a, a lead for somebody else. So they actually reorganized their whole business around um, Basically, you're part of one job team, and, and you're doing everything you can to actually help them make the progress they want to make in that job. And so they're, they're a good example of a company that has been able to take what they thought were flat sales and grow significantly by, uh, one, finding the jobs, but two, then reorganizing around it and then having everybody focus on it and then using that as almost synergy or the ability to, to uh, help each other along the way. And so they, so people who used to use only one thing, now on average people are using two, 2.8 or almost three, three different products of theirs as opposed to only one before. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, terrific. Um, and we talked about HBR, we talked about Clay's book. Also in the summer issue of Pragmatic Marketing Magazine, uh, I was privileged to write an article about a company called Eagle Investment Systems, and they organized around customer outcomes or the outcomes that their customers want to achieve. And what was interesting is the product organization, the product management organization, actually took the lead in terms of defining what the customer outcomes or the outcomes that customers want to achieve and also aligning the organization to deliver those outcomes. Okay. And because we're here in New England and we're all fans of the New England Patriots, the yeah, metaphor that worked, well, thank you, last night, if I'm a little hoarse, it's because of uh, screaming at the TV last night at that incredible football game. Great, great comeback they, ever. Greatest comeback ever. Fabulous uh, to watch as well. So, uh, so what we did is we organized uh, those outcomes and we referred to them as plays. Yep. And people could really recognize uh, the whole concept of the plays, get excited and motivated to support the plays. And as a result, the pipeline uh, for each play has grown astronomically by uh, up to about yep. 10x. Yeah. So it really, to your point, getting aligned around helping customers make progress in a job isn't just theory, but it has tremendous impact on the business, but also tremendous impact on how product marketing and product management is, achieved, is viewed within the organization. You're moving yeah. into the role of quarterback, if you will, to follow the, uh, the football analogy. So yeah. go ahead. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, to me, there's really four really big kind of benefits I see organizationally from, from 
doing something like an exercise like this. And, and you know, one is just distributed decision making is that by everybody focusing on the customer and understanding what the outcome is, what the context is, the value code and the trade-offs they're willing to make, you don't have to have all these all these big meetings anymore. So what you have is people are now empowered to make decisions at, at much, much lower levels and you, you have less uh, feature creep, you have less, you know, it, it's just one of those things where because everybody has a similar language and you're not talking about easy anymore. You're talking about easy to easy to actually onboard or easy to set up or easy to log in or very specific things you have to be able to do. And so to me, it's really, really important. The second is really resource optim optimization because you you can what, what we end up doing is spending way too much time on the wrong stuff. And so by understanding what's important to the customer, we actually can can adjust our resource allocation to to the important things. That, that are that are again those trade-offs consumers are willing to make to say I'm I would much rather have it be faster to install than have it be more thorough and so in some cases it's like all right how do we actually do that so um, I think uh, the third one is really inspiration for the group uh, because I think it, it helps to have everybody in the organization really focused on on being able to. Um, you know, uh, understand the customer and that you're you're helping the customer one way or another. And I think the the last one, which to me is is it's subtle, but I think it's at the crux of a lot of a, a lot of issues is is it helps you with better measurement. We tend to measure the easy things about the customer or about the product. but but when we understand the job clearly, we really can focus on better measurement systems, and usually really good measurements are hard to make. And so what happens is is that it focuses us to figure out what are those right measures of uh, consumption, of value, of, of uh, struggle, and to be able to understand how to help customers along the way. And so to me, it really gets us to focus off of, well, how many times did they log in? Well, I don't know if that's really relevant. It's like, what, what was the intent behind the login? Can we actually understand and see it? Can we see the different kinds of logins that they have? One is an update login. We have another kind of login. And so all of a sudden, if we see that 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 is being value added, how do we actually get to it as opposed to just talking about logins? So I think you know those are the four things that I find that organizations really benefit from you know going after jobs is again distributed decision making, resource optimization, inspiration, and then better measurement. Fantastic. Thanks, Neil, so much. Um, so you can reach me basically um, through Twitter at, at, at BMESTA, B-M-O-E-S-T-A, um, therewiredgroup.com, um, or um, LinkedIn. One of those places is where I have, I have a very small design firm, and I'm really interested in being able to partner with people and, and be able to solve really what I would call really big problems. So um, I continue to write about it um, or partner with it. The book is Competing Against Luck. I worked with Clay on it for three years. Um, and any, you know, to me, I love to partner with people like you, Neil, because at some point, uh, any 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 ability to talk about it or discuss jobs to be done, I'm I'm interested in. Sounds great. And for people who want to follow me, uh, it's Neil Barron at BarronStrategic.com is my email. That's N-B-A-R-O-N at BarronStrategic.com. My website is BarronStrategic.com as well. Also, I write regularly for Pragmatic Marketing. Uh, so, Bob, this was terrific. Uh, thanks for the overview. And I know the listeners will really get a ton of value out of this. Thank you so much.
Wow. Thank you, Neil and Bob, for sharing that great conversation. And thank you all for listening. I hope you got as much out of that as I did. Don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. Mm-hmm.